Let us pray. Father God, as we are before your word, let us fall in love with it. Let us delight at what we have just read by the time we, we finish considering it this morning. And more importantly, let us delight in the Savior whose word establishes us and builds us up. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first in-depth conversation I ever had with my wife, who, the woman who would become my wife, was on politics. And I, one of my majors is political science. I was in the, the, the throes of it. I absolutely loved the conversation. And we just carried on for, for hours and hours talking about this. Here, this beautiful woman wants to talk politics with me. And it was just, it was just fantastic. And I absolutely loved it. And obviously I loved her and eventually we were married. But I, I bring that up because today's passage is a unique one. In that, I must confess at earlier times in my walk that I reached this chapter in the Bible and said, oh man, this conversation's really getting boring. Here's all this stuff. It's got to be built out this way. It's got to have this on it, this on it, that on it. And it wasn't until uh, I had a pastor who, who uh, really brought me along and and started showing me what these things were pointing towards that I could look at this chapter and chapters like this and go, wow, what God's trying to say here is incredible. It's an incredible conversation. And, and, and honestly, the things described here have become some of my most favored images of the faith. And so I think we have a real opportunity it's that, that God is, is speaking to us here. Because here is the first building of a tabernacle of God's presence since the Garden of Eden. The, the Garden of Eden, of course, was called a paradise. Now, just know the ancient word of paradise we know this, it was fairly universal. It was the idea of a walled garden. And so, for instance, the Persians used the word paradise, and they would picture things like the hanging gardens of Babylon, this, this walled, idyllic paradise. But for the ancient Israelite, here would be a, a new kind of tabernacle paradise that is being described. And so much of this imagery has in it an idea of a paradise where God is present, a place where heaven meets earth, a place where God meets the mortal. And God began to make this new tabernacle here on earth, and he'll set up images and decorative elements that speak to us about paradise. And this is why this section gets me so excited, because God loves this theme. Because we have a God who desires intimacy with us. He yearns to have us where he is, but he also yearns to be where we are. He wants the relationship to be perfect between us. And we bump into this reality all over scripture, but we just miss it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, for the 10,000th time when you tell a spouse that you love them, it's sort of like, eh, meh, I get it, I know. We, but God through all out scripture, he's saying things like, I will be your God, you will be my people. He's not saying, hey, if you try hard enough, or work hard enough, I might reward you with heaven. No, he's actually saying, 
For those in a true relationship with me, I want you to understand that our relationship together, you don't need to worry. It's a promise thing. It's ironclad. There will be a paradise for you and I together. That's why we as Protestants deeply emphasize the assurance of faith, because the assurance of faith is an assurance on the God that tells us and declares of our assurance. And so God is going to describe what this sanctuary will be built out to look like and what the elements within it, they're going to point back to the very beginning. They're also going to point forward in some instances for what is to come. And so this is a new moment of creation. For instance, I pointed this out last, out last time I preached, but how many instances, and if you don't remember, that's okay. It's more of a rhetorical question, but if you do, go ahead and shout out. Will God talk to Moses about the t- in this period of building out the tabernacle? How many instances will he speak to him? It's seven times. Six times he will give instructions on what to build in this tabernacle. The seventh time he'll focus on speaking about the Sabbath itself. Now, if we're going back in Scripture, what's the first time where God speaks out in six instances of building something, and then the final instance is about a Sabbath rest? This one I'll ask the audience, the the, the, the listener, yes, not the audience, the worshiper. The creation itself. This is a re-creation kind of moment. That that is not a coincidence that there's going to be six times where, where Moses is addressed by God with instructions on how the tabernacle is built, how this new paradise is kind of built, of God dwelling in their midst. And then the seventh is going to be about the importance of keeping the Sabbath. And so we get a picture, and then as this tabernacle will be completed by the end of the book of Exodus, we'll find a God finally resting in the midst of his people in the cool of a tented sanctuary in the wilderness. We picture a God at rest with his people and creation. That's where Exodus is now moving towards with the creation of the tabernacle. How big was the tabernacle? Here we meet on the the sacred worship day of the Super Bowl and with the high priestess Taylor Swift and and Kelsey and all those types. It was one-fourth of a football field. One-fourth of an American football. God doesn't need a huge space, but God desires a space with intentionality on what's inside of it, on what are the pieces that make up this space. And he wants it to be cut out, as we talked about last time, with the very best of things. But it's, it's quite remarkable that it's only a fourth of a football field. And then there is something else about this tabernacle that's often missed. Well, God is the architect. God is the design, designer, and he has a role to play. Who ultimately will carry out this tabernacle being built is the people. And how do the people carry out this tabernacle being built? By being faithful to his word. By being faithful to the instructions that his word has, he has given us through his word. And this is just an important reality of Christianity itself. You know, I've served in several capacities in Christian ministry. I've served with parachurches, 
and churches and, and, and other things, counseling. And by far and large, by far and away, the most excited people get about Christian ministry happens at, in parachurch ministry. We're doing something. We're, we're finally doing something. And, and, and it can almost become a, a church unto itself. It can become a, a community unto itself. And yet the reality is here, and the reality really, I think, in the biblical unfolding is that not that that kind of ministry is bad. Actually, they're wonderful. We, we love coming alongside of Life Turning Point and, and other ministries. But the faith is a faith in which the individual's obedience to the Word of God is a part of the actual commission that God gives. And that actually in that obedience, that faithful obedience to the word of God, a great multitude of others can be blessed. Jesus did remarkable things. He fed people at, at times and, and healed people at times, but it was his abiding faithfulness of living out the law of God in, in faithfulness that ultimately saves us. And and is the model for us to follow him. It's not that the other things are bad, but they're byproducts of this greater idea. And so here were people and they're called to, the community is called to be tent makers in one sense. And that idea will even persist into the New Testament that in evangelism itself, in this body itself, as Paul will talk about later in Corinthians, it's like we are a tent. And in one sense, evangelizing is being a tent maker and living faithfully is helping to represent that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So Christians today, to boil this down, might often think that to expand the kingdom today, we got to be involved in the right cause or group. But the history of kingdom breakthrough is a history of faithful submission to God's word over time in difficult places and faithfulness to his design on how we should go. Now, the building of the tabernacle begins with an ark. First, this was not the first ark of the camp. If you were with us during the Joseph portion, or if you remember back in Exodus 13, uh, the first ark of the camp was actually the remains of Joseph. That was an ark that Anybody could touch it. There was the, it was the, the remains of the favored son of Israel, his bones in one sense, his body in one sense, that they had um, preserved out of request from Joseph because he did not want to be buried in the land that they were promised beforehand with his father Abraham, of his grandfather Abraham, uh, Isaac, and, uh, and Jacob. But he wanted to wait with the people of Israel. He wanted his body to go with them. This is actually now going to be the second arc of the camp. And this arc is different. This second arc of the wilderness does not contain the bones, but actually the instructions will be very clear. It will have two poles in order that human hands not touch it once it's built. And why they cannot touch it is that the ark will become God's footstool. Often the ark is presumed to be a chair. Yet the scripture, in the scriptures, the word of God is clear. God is found suspended above the ark. He is above the ark. The ark is, is really depicted as a footstool, an ottoman, 
And the idea is that God puts his feet there. We see the description of God's presence being above the ark in passages such as 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, Psalm 80, and Psalm 99 also begin with it. There's a couple other places, but probably the best place to go to see this idea of the ark as a footstool is from the lips of David in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, where David says, I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of wreck, rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. This is God's footstool being built. And what's in the ark that God will put his feet, will rest his feet on? In our passage, God makes clear the law will be there. It will also carry Aaron's staff, as we'll later know. And we learned, I believe, back in chapter 16, that an omer of manna will be kept there additionally. And that might sound disrespectful at first, that the idea of all these things are in an ark and God puts his feet about this on it. But this was actually a very common idea in the ancient regions. Actually, we've discovered through archaeology that this was a regular kind of occurrence. There's a letter, for instance, that Ramses II wrote to a king about an agreement he made with the Hittite king. And he basically said, yeah, the portion that that king signed, I put under the temple uh, of the feet of the god in the temple of Ra. And then the portion that the other king signed, uh, that he signed, was under the other god's temple. And the idea was, here's an agreement between two nations, and at the foot of them, the foot of their gods, was the law, or the requirement, or the duty of what they would do. Even today, in our language, we would ideally want, and nobody would think I was odd if I said we wanted politicians who would stand upon the very foundation of the Constitution, for instance. You wouldn't think I was crazy. You would understand that at a foundational level, these core documents are what builds up uh, whether it's nation or the faith itself. And so the Ark served as a footstool testifying to God's faithfulness, and that imagery is found there. And here, this footstool of an ark, it's going to carry the law as we talked about. And God will be suspended, metaphorically speaking, with his feet upon a wooden ottoman plated with gold. And then in verse 17, we see the mention of a mercy seat. When we see mercy seat, we immediately think chair. The mercy seat is not a chair, however. It is in... It is basically the lid for the, for the ark. It is the lid on top of this Ottoman reality. And as almost every Reformed pastor mentions, this lid is a good thing. Because if you remember the fact that just a couple chapters back, what happened with the people when it came to the law of God? What did they promise they would do with the law of God? that they would perfectly what? Keep it and obey it. And so the idea of the mercy seat is that it would serve as a covering for the law of God that declares that these people are not keeping the law. And on this mercy seat, while they cannot depict the feet of God, uh, they do depict two cherubim, which would have pointed back to the garden, back to the paradise, but also to the heavenly throne room above. And they, the mercy seat is that covering, that covering. 
eventually what will happen with this mercy seat is it will be the very place where the blood is sprinkled as an offering uh, by the high priest, as we will later see, to atone for the fact that underneath the feet of God is the fact that we are guilty of breaking the law. Even the high priest himself had to sacrifice for the, in order to even approach this mercy seat. And so it's a, an amazing image. And so as this image of the ark comes together, we are to picture our Lord who sits enthroned in heaven, and yet humanity has made for him a wooden footstool that his feet are to suspend upon, and that he's planned the design of, and yet they technically still built for him. And at this wooden holder of God's feet, blood would be sprinkled and spilled, and it would atone for the fact that inside the ark, every single law of God had been broken. Not broken by God, of course, but broken by God's people. So blood must be shed at the Lord's footstool, built out of wood by the people. And so if you're starting to get what's being unpacked here with the imagery, this is touching on the climax of the Bible kind of imagery when it comes to our salvation, both as it was promised, and they would have understood it as promised in Genesis 3.15, but also carried out in his passion. And this is why it's so serious to misunderstand the gospel and how we're saved. It's so popular when people ask, are you a Christian? Or, or, or ask whether they're a Christian. They say, oh, I'm trying to be. Oh, I, I'm trying my best. No, that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is, was the blood spilled on your behalf? Do you have a relationship with this God where the sacrifice has been made, a blood offering has been made, where you can now approach him? That's really the idea of being saved, and that's why this is a gospel issue. This is a, an issue where lines are drawn in the Christian community, because to not understand the blood that must be spilt upon the mercy seat is to misunderstand the reality of God's promise itself. Biblical salvation, as said at the very start in Genesis 3.15, was going to come from God crushing sin with his feet, and yet somehow it was going to hurt him in the process. Yet the bruising received would be temporary, but the effects of what our Lord will do will crush both sin and the power of, devil, of the devil, and it will last forever. And here, 1,500 years before the cross, God letting this first congregation design a wooden foretaste of a greater ark to come, where the Lord's feet will be suspended above, and the blood will flow down that forgives us of our sins and crushes the power of Satan over God's people. And so here in Exodus 25, God continues to show us some of the contours, talk to us about what salvation looks like. And what salvation looks like is it's found in his blood. And then in verse 22, we read a peculiar promise. God says that at this mercy seat, as he's talking to Moses, there I will meet you from the above mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, here's the thing. Once the mercy seat is established of this exodus, this, this Ark of the Covenant, there's a problem. Once we reach Exodus 40, Moses cannot enter the Holy of Holies. He's not the high priest. And so there's this tension here. There's only one individual in the entire community who can meet God here. 
And so what kind of meeting place is this? A meeting place is found wanting and it's severely limited in one sense. Because before this wooden ark, this one, others cannot go besides the high priest once a year. And then outside of this mercy seat and ark, God wants something else built. He wants the building of a table. He wants dishes and cups and bowls where wine and bread are brought before him regularly. How regularly would this be? Leviticus 24 verses 8 through 9 tell us it's clear. Bread and wine would be brought before the Lord on behalf of the congregation once a week. Fresh bread and wine once a week. Not fresh bread and wine once a month. Not fresh bread and wine once a quarter. No, the idea was bread and wine were to be weekly things. I've never heard a compelling argument as to why Protestants avoid the pattern first set up by the Torah, but also later complemented by passages like Acts 2.42 and 1 Corinthians 11.20, but I'm open to hearing some. I've heard a lot of great reasons people don't think the church should have communion each week, but I haven't heard one that involves biblical verses, and I'm open to hearing it. So before the wooden ark, where the blood will be sprinkled at the suspended footstool of God, is a table with the elements of bread and wine. The tables in their total would ultimately have at their fullness 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe before the Lord. And the priest, as representatives, the Levitical priests would eventually be told to eat the bread, which is interesting because while the Levitical priesthood would first eat the bread, do you remember what God said earlier in Sinai? At chapter 19, he said that he wanted to create a kingdom of priests. And so the longing was, in one sense, for one day, a meal to be shared between all the community, woman and man, young and old, that they could partake of the bread that comes from the table of the Lord. Because God had gone forth and created a people who would be a kingdom of priests. Now the lampstand imagery is next. And it was a lampstand that was designed to look like a tree. If you looked at, if you looked at a menorah, it's very similar. There's slight differences. This lighted tree pointed back, most agreed to the tree of life in the garden. But notice the type of tree it's being fashioned after. It's being fashioned after an almond tree. An almond tree, and we know this from the Gospels and from the other areas of the New Testament, was always the first tree to blossom and bear fruit in the spring in this region, as early as February. And so this was a tree that would be linked, as Paul would call Christ, the first fruits. Later in the New Testament, the idea to Jesus' resurrection itself. And so it was encompassed with the idea of almond tree. But also the lampstand will have an additional seven lights. And we can see in chapter 26, verse 37, uh, which was a part of the reading, um, the additional lampstands. A lampstand will become the focal imagery uh, of congregations later on. As we read in the opening of Revelation itself, that we found seven churches, and God refers to each one having their own lampstand. A lampstand is a symbol of having that true saving gospel, a good news, the light of Christ who has come into the world to take away the sins of the world by his shed blood. And so in one sense, the lampstands not only symbolize the, the one primary, symbolizes the resurrection of Christ and the tree of life as the true tree of life, but also 
uh, the seven additional ones look point forward to us as a part of his grand congregation. And then we have the image of the curtains. The last image we'll consider this morning. They're going to divide this tent up to make a tented tabernacle. And to do a tent, you need a dividing wall of separation. In God's instructions for this tabernacle, he wanted beautiful curtains where it's cherubim woven through them, guarding the entrance of the most holy place. Just like he once put cherubim to guard the Garden of Eden. This reminds us of a paradise lost. But these are cherubim in the midst of shades of blue and purple and scarlet. And God ultimately is using these colors to draw to the beauty and grandeur of the heavens. These curtain barriers dividing the tabernacle into layers of access were to protect the people in one sense, in their sinfulness from approaching God too cavalierly and too carelessly. There was an outer court and then an inner court, and then finally veiled behind one last curtain, the most holy place where God would meet the high priest once a year. God was teaching his children with these curtains the only way sinful humanity can approach a righteous God is through blood sacrifice for atonement. The veil signified that direct access to all of God's majesty was not yet open to them. His fullness was still veiled, waiting for a future day. And I'd like you to think just for a moment of the ancient Israelite with all these curtains. What do you want to do when you see a dividing wall? When you, when you hear and you see the glory cloud of the Lord come into this tent, this tabernacle, what would be your heart's desire? It'd be to go in, to go have this meeting place. There's, I've heard there's wine, there's bread there. I've heard there's, there's a chance for fellowship, there's a chance. But what would happen if I, a member of the tribe of Judah, tried such a thing? I'd be struck down dead. I'd be struck down dead. And here... There would just be this longing when you see a barrier like that. You know, it's probably a little bit like, I don't pay for my kids to go into Disney anymore, but there's like, we'll walk up to where the parks are and there's like the, the, the walls. And you start thinking, oh, I wonder if I could jump that. You don't actually do it, but you start thinking like, huh, how would you break into this place? If you could break into this place, you, you wonder, your mind explores the space. I'm not saying it's righteous, but it, it's what happens sometimes. But what would happen if you went through that curtain, past that veil, you would die. And that's why, Christian, three of the four accounts of Jesus' death in the Gospels makes clear that right as that blood-bought purchase is completed, right as Jesus declares it is finished, the veil gets torn. The veil gets ripped open. because. For three hours, our Lord held suspended on a wooden ark. And he allowed his blood to pour out from his body. He allowed that blood to cover the ground below him, the feet. And he struggled with all of that. And he did that for a reason. And he did that for a reason so that is so glorious and good. He wanted us to be able to approach him in faith. But the problem was, there was something left unsaid 
beneath his feet that we've all struggled to obey. We've all struggled to be faithful to. And that is the law of God. And it needed to be dealt with. And it needed to have blood poured out upon it. And it needed to be perfect blood, as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism. No just ordinary blood. No blood from bulls and goats could have done this. No, it needed to be a perfect offering, a perfect peace offering. And he accepted that ark. He accepted that ark that was really the design of the people that he first, that first knew him and the Israelites, built by a pagan government. That, that this unholy alliance of, of Jew and Gentile created a wooden ark for his feet to be suspended from the earth. And yet when it was all done, when his work was all accomplished, he could declare it was finished, the veil could be ripped apart, and we could have the opportunity to have communion with our Lord, to be in a, through the power of the life-giving Spirit, as would later come at Pentecost, actual temples of the Holy Spirit, to actually have God's abiding presence with us, to actually not look at so much what we did and say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. You look at what our, our Savior sacrificed to do, we say, we're Christian because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, because of his incredible love. What did we sing to start our service? Behold our God seated at his throne. You can. You can now do that through the shed blood of Christ. What a wonderful salvation that we have. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you accepted another ark, a later ark, in which it wasn't going to be the blood of bulls and goats, but it was going to be your shed blood, and that you gave us a better table, a table to meet with you, to commune with you, that no one in your community can ever fear now running to you in faith. No, actually... We can boldly come to the throne of grace as the word of God declares. And so let us, as we leave, prepare to leave this place to run more boldly to the throne of grace, not just in worship, not just as we are present here on a Lord's day, but let us be better reminded as we go through the course of our day-to-day lives, when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with loving, when we struggle with um, living, as you called us to live, let us run boldly to the throne of grace and remember our Savior and look to you and become more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.